Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS. Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more. Hello, and welcome back to another edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Rob Lawrence. Also with us this time round is our guest host, Dr. Maya Dorsett, and also Hilary Gates, who we'll hear from in a second. Today on the podcast, we will be discussing the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion practices in our EMS systems, and more specifically, the idea of implicit bias and upstander training. To do that, we've asked Dr. Ricky Tripp to teach us about this concept. And to bring Dr. Tripp in, here's the one and only Hillary Gates. We are really thrilled today to have as our guest Ricky Tripp from University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And uh, Ricky, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you arrived at being interested in, in the training of diversity, equity, and inclusion? Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Hillary. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. Um, so to uh, go through multiple hats that I wear. So I will say the ones currently, so I am the Vice Chair of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion for UPMC Graduate Medical Education. I'm the Vice Chair of Diversity, Inclusion, Health Equity for the Department of Emergency Medicine. I'm an Assistant Professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine. I'm the Ombudsperson for the Department of Emergency Medicine. I'm also EMS Medical Director for four different agencies, including Foxwall, Lower Valley, Southeast Regional, Penn Hills. I am the Assistant Medical Director for City of Pittsburgh, EMS. Um, I am also a command physician, so I do consults with airlines, and then I am a commander in the Navy Reserves, and so I and so that's about all the hats that I, I wear in simultaneously. Just a couple, just a couple, just a couple, just a little, just you know, just a little bit, you know. Whew, yeah, I try to take that big breath. But um, <laughs> what got me started a lot in um, the DEI or the diversity, equity, inclusion work, and some people say Jedi with justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. So, you know, for all those, you know, like Star Wars, which I am definitely a fan, but, you know, uh, Jedi is, is what we like. You know, I got my saber of justice, you know what I'm saying? But, um, <laughs> but however, going into and the, what brought me into it? So how I identify myself as a black cis female heterosexual. And so in my life, that is how I view my perspective as being a black woman. And, um, and I've had a lot of different things happen to me where I have been the victim and traumatized by experiences of things that I would say that are only happening to me because of my identity. And that's what drove me into really pursuing this because I would say that when I became the first vice chair for DEI for UPMC GME and also the first vice chair for the Department of Emergency Medicine, when it comes to DIHE, uh, was it, a, it was interesting because you'll have some people of thinking that, well, you know, because you are part of the underrepresented in medicine group, that, you know, we should have someone else. So have someone that is probably the majority, having a white person be the DI leader. It should not always be the onus on the minority because we don't want to have what's called this minority tax, meaning that, you know, there's a sacrifice from our URIM 
physicians or, you know, colleagues that sacrifice their time, sacrifice capital, you know, money, things of that nature, and not given the compensation for doing a lot of different things, whether it's mentoring, whether it's educating, things of that nature. And so to obviously go against that minority taxes, people will say, well, there should be a majority tax. So people who are part of the majority group, which is uh, the white race, of being in these locations and basically kind of like paying that toll. My only caveat with that with people is that I think that everyone should be on the same bus or train with driving this when it comes to DEI. But I would say that it's, you know, for me, it's harder for me to give the reins up to someone who may not have experienced what I have gone through. And for me, when I'm able to tell you what has happened in my life, that is truly my own experience. I can rehash my own trauma. And it's not that I can theorize with it. Like this is real because this actually happened. And how I'm able to describe that you can feel the experience. You can feel that this is still a scar that I will always have. And I can only shed that from telling you of how my identity has played into this. And that's how I'm able to structure different initiatives based upon my own experience, based upon how when I was a victim, how I did not have allies. I did not have people who were advocating for me. And that's what really drove me to create Upstander Training was because I realized that I had friends that would come to me and they'll say, you know, I heard this was this was bad what this person said. It was biased. It was prejudiced. But I didn't know how to engage. I didn't know what to say. And so I was silent. And recognizing that that silence truly signals that complacency and that acceptance, even if you don't accept it. But if you don't say anything, no one knows that you're against something. And so that's why Upstander was in, was developed. And we did get the permission from the Learning for Justice of the Poverty Law Center project for us to use their framework with IQE to speak up against injustice, which is I is for interrupt, Q is for question, E is for educate, and the last E is for echo. And the reason why we like upstander instead of the terminology bystander. So most people may be familiar that there's two terminologies for the same allyship training, bystander and upstander. The reason why we chose upstander is going to be our, you know, our title for empowering a safe, inclusive environment for, you know, any professionals was because we want to get away from the psychosocial theory of bystander effect. And people may be familiar with this, which is literally where if you go to the supermarket and someone becomes unresponsive, just drops right there. And you'll walk by and you'll see like a crowd, like 10 people around this person and people will just be around this person. But but however, the issue is, did anyone actually call 911? Did anyone actually put any hands or check on that person? And in reality, most people do not. And the issue is that with bystander effect is that people are standing around and being passive with no action, just being present. And, you know, and when another person's coming, they say there's five five people there. Somebody must have called 911. So that's my justification for not having any action. So that's why getting away from that bystander effect terminology and concentrating on a new terminology with upstander, where you are speaking up, you are basically taking a stand, you're standing up 
against injustice. And that's why the upstander terminology was coined. So then you understand that this is an up action. This is something that you are not going to be sitting by. You're not just being passive, that you are truly being a change maker, an advocate, being a hero for someone that's experiencing injustice. Wonderful. Um, Maya came back from Pinnacle um, in July and talked um, with great passion about what she heard from you. And so this is why we're so excited to have you on the podcast. Maya, talk to us about um, that experience for you and why you think this is so important for people to hear um, from Ricky. There's a lot of reasons I think people need to hear this from Ricky. Um, and one of the things I definitely want to get into at some point is, right, how do we bring this into our initial education? How to bring this into our continuing education? Why is that important, you know, to our workforce and our patients and our communities? I think that there's some general principle. I think very often we think of this as like some unique aspect of culture, and I think really this is about having a learning culture in your organization. There's um, a book called The Fearless Organization. It's, I tell people, I think it's like one of the best books for quality improvements by Amy Edmondson. She's a business professor in Harvard, and she um, really coined the term of psychological safety, sort of thinking about how you create the culture of a learning organization, which is how you create a stronger organization that is always looking for opportunities for improvement. And I think about it as like, how do we have sort of psychological safety around people's ability to speak up? And she talks a lot about what you can do as a leader, what you can do as a, what culture can you create so that people are able to speak up? Um, and the first step is that you express gratitude for feedback, right? That it's not, and you have to say like, how does it make me feel? Because it's not about me. It's not about the threat to my identity, it's about the perception that we are all in it for the greater good, that the reason that the feedback is given is because somebody cares enough to give the feedback. And it's not even about them or you or me or whatever. It's like, it's about the culture we are trying to create. Um, and it's quite brave, right? Somebody puts themselves sort of at a, at a very vulnerable place to be able to give that feedback. And they are doing that because they care enough about the future of the organization, about the future of the culture to make things better. And so we all need to care about that, whether or not it makes us feel uncomfortable. And so we teach those principles, right? Like in the context of quality improvement, or I teach them in education, how do you create psychological safety? Um, because that's how you create the culture that we all want to have, right? Where we're always striving to do better. And I think the the training that you provide around this context, right? Like, Right. Was it Jedi? <laughs> right. 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 That is really about how do we have like the days like that's how we have stronger organizations. That's how we like do more good in the world. Um, and this is one aspect of how do we take feedback about um, an issue that we have a lot of identity threat around and put it in the perspective of like, we all want to do good in the world. Um, and we need to start teaching like that is the that is the intent. Um, it's not this interpersonal. It's the bigger. It's the bigger picture. Um, and when somebody's willing to be that vulnerable and that courageous, like we need to respond with gratitude. Um, and to me, like I, I just think like your example is so is so brilliant um, because it's things like 
sometimes like the story I'm telling my, like, that may not be your intent, but when these words came at me, the story I'm telling myself is that you, you don't think this, um, and right, like that's like a Brene Brown thing. I've used when I read Brene Brown books, like using the concept of like the story I'm telling myself is this, mm-hmm. right? So let's things. And if I'm saying something that is making you feel that way, then we have to remedy that communication. I have to learn to be a better, effective, more effective communicator so that what is received matches the intent of the communication. And I just think like, if we could be better at this, we could be better at everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Well, it's it's all about that courage. And Maya, this is a great segue uh, for us to hear from Ricky about the entire culture of a fire department or an EMS agency, right? And there's there are tiers of, uh, of power and there are leaders who have a lot of impact on what's going on in the in the organization. Ricky, I know in um, January at NAMSP at the annual meeting, you're going to be doing this incredible day-long pre-con on, uh, in Austin on Monday the 8th of January, empowering leadership, building equity and excellence into EMS systems. If your leader isn't doing this or demonstrating this behavior or modeling it and showing that there is an, an ability to have courageous conversations and psychological safety, then the others aren't going to follow. And I think all of us listening to this podcast will absolutely have a story or 10 about being in a situation with people and and you're the rookie or the new guy or the new gal and you don't have the ability or the wherewithal or even the guts to speak up. Um, can you talk about that power dynamic in the in in our situations as EMS clinicians and as uh, firefighters? Sure, no problem. And I do think that's the only time where I do believe in the top down approach. That that literally, when you are the top leader, um, it can basically bleed down. So then people feel comfortable. You know, when we're talking about that just culture where people are feeling accountable and feel blamed, you know, but people feel like, you know what, I want to admit to my error and, you know, people are not shamed. People are not punished. It's more of, okay, let's help to understand and let's help to see what we can do to prevent this from happening. And, you know, and we thank you for bringing this up. So it's more of a change of, a, of that mentality of I'm thanking you for bringing up an error, not that I'm going to punish you and shame you, which I think sometimes in our EMS cultures and our, you know, fire um, systems where literally that can be that blaming that like, oh, let me single this person out. And so when that person is singled out, especially being, you know, in a full group, you know, how does that person feel? That person feels like, I'm not going to say a thing again. Like I thought, you know, this is a good thing that I did, but now I'm being shamed. I'm being shunned. You know, things are being taken away from me. So now I'm going to hide things or now I'm going to start to manipulate things to make it seem like I didn't do something wrong. Um, you know, I had, I had a case where I had a, an EMS clinician that did have for a call we we're doing it uh this is for a qa and um and literally um they did not do uh they did not provide the correct medication and um and you know and analyzing the reasonings why like i can read the monitor and they changed their ems chart to be as though that 
they did these things. But again, I can look at the monitor. I can see like how there's different changes in the vital signs compared to what is the report in the EMS chart. And literally I put both in front of the patient person in front of the EMS clinician and said, can you explain this to me? How this is what I'm getting from the monitor, which is what should be the same within your chart. And you could see that person fumbling things in that nature. And, you know, and, you know, and, and the big thing for me is I, you know, as an EMS medical director, you know, I'm like, I want, I'm pointing out this inconsistency because I want to see if there's some explanation that I just don't know, because I'm not going to make this bias, this assumption that this was done with an ill intent. So whether it was, we didn't remember, I put these in, you know, I'm trying to see at least what is the, what is the basis for this action? Because then I can try to have a remedy for it. And interestingly enough, the person had no comment. And when they have no comment, that's now when I proceed. May I ask, did you have the monitor in front of you? Did you look at what was going on? Because now my interpretation based on your no response is that this was done in a way that should not have. And, you know, and then the person start bringing up, well, I'm still burned out. I'm having all these different shifts. And, you know, and definitely and what I tell all of my you know, my paramedics EMTs, I'm like, please bring those things up to us, to the agency, you know, beforehand, not as an after action type of deal, um, because I can't prevent things if I don't know about them beforehand. Now, I will say that this person did end up uh, leaving the agency uh, based upon some repeated things that were happening. But, you know, as a medical director, when we are coming into the play, you know, these are some of the like, hard things and difficult things that we have to do. So that's why when I do see my EMS agency and when I'm doing feedback, it's not only feedback coming. I'm not only coming to the agency when I need to have a sit down with someone, you know, you start doing randomization of just saying, Hey, I'm just here just to come visit. So that builds the culture in the agency that like, whenever you see Dr. Tripp is not for something bad. So you start balancing that of like, yes, I probably may be here for something that I need to address that may be a very challenging situation, but at the other other same time, I'm here to support. And, you know, and so you can build that culture from the top down from the medical director. A lot of things that I've had, even as a commander in Navy Reserves, even for being in the military um, and, you know, even as a medical director, I've had people come up to me like, wow, you are just like, I didn't even know that you were a doctor. Like you just have a presence of you that's so welcoming, that's so open where I would not even think because I'm not being demanding. I'm not being arrogant. I'm not telling people, well, you need to do this because I'm the physician or because I'm approving of your credentialing. Like I don't say any of those different things. But however, like I try to engage them so that, you know, I'm here to to empower you all to, you know, really help each other and then also to help me, you know, and that's one of the things when people see that, you'll start seeing that people will be encouraged and empowered around you. And sometimes, yes, it feels uncomfortable being that that solo person. But I will say that when you are that solo person, when you're able to be that, you'll find that people will start now amplifying that voice, amplifying that action based upon at least one person started it off. And it's like a catalyst effect. And so, you know, and so that's why I would say that 
when we're looking at power hierarchy, you know, it does take courage, you know, to be any type of conflict, any type of power. And what I tell people when I, you know, when we do like the IQE with the intro question, educate and echo, I tell people that no one should be attacking you for a question. So, and for clarification. So that's why in that first part to interrupt, you're clarifying. You know, I just want to make sure I, I, I heard you correctly. Or, you know, do you mind, you know, uh, do you mind clarifying to me what you meant by saying this? Because again, I'm coming to you. I have a tone that's even. I have a tone that's non-judgmental. I have a tone that, you know, is basically very inquisitive. And that and leveraging that curiosity where people are like, oh, you know, yes, this is what I meant by saying this. And, you know, and you can add in, you know, may I ask you why or what around us would have you think in this way or go in this direction? You know, what around us or what did the patient say? Just to make sure I'm not missing something makes you think that this person is intoxicated. You know, it, that's where we're going with this direction. And that allows people to reveal their bias. And that's then it gives you the information how you can educate that person of saying, you know, uh, OK, I see where you're you're thinking because this person has slurred speech. But, you know, do you mind, you know, if we at least let's get some, you know, some vital signs. Let's get a, a blue a glucose because like I think slurred speech also could be for a stroke or could be for like hypoglycemia, like a diabetic emergency. Like, you know, let, let's let's you know, can we do that before we're going straight to the narcan? And, you know, and so that's the way that you can reframe things so people can kind of open up their horizon perspective of not being, and some people will say it's tunnel vision, um, you know, and that can be where you're so used to so many different calls, or even you may have the same, you know, patient with repeated calls and you can get stuck into this bias of, oh, this is just what this person has. But what I tell people, you know, during my EMS training, I said, you know, like for people who even may be intoxicated. Do they walk straight? Do they have great gait and stability and just, you know, they have great balance? No, they're falling. They're hitting things, you know? So think about trauma when you're, when you're thinking of a person who's intoxicated too. I can count on like both of my hands and my feet of the times during residency and medical school. And even as an attending where we've had a person who's been in the emergency department with a metabolized to freedom or, you know, intoxication, but in reality, they ended up having a head bleed and, you know, and then having to, and then that was like three hour delay for the care of that person. And, you know, and so that's why we have to recognize that again, if there's anything that we're seeing on that person, if there is like a slight abrasion on their forehead, get the CT, you know, making sure you're putting in a C collar. This could be a trauma because again, if this person is not walking like they should, they're more propensity or risk for falling, for injuring themselves. So just having people think in a different um, way and mindset and, and how you do that again is really for the leadership is really to make sure that people are aware of the different perspectives that they're aware with implicit bias training and the leaders participate in implicit bias training. So for right now in the city of Pittsburgh, all of our chiefs are also participating in the same training as our paramedics and our EMTs. And it's good for them to be able to interact with, you know, all of our EMS clinicians so they can do a change in framework of addressing someone that is acting upon their bias or their or having a microaggression towards this patient um, and being able to interrupt that. I think um, 
the way I introduce teaching it, right? And this is like my non-expert way, um, is we already teach about sort of metacognition and system one and system two thinking, right? Like I think that's a basic principle that underlies like everything, right? How do you form, like how are we making clinical decisions? An integrating discussion of our biases of structural racism into the very conversation about, right, like our heuristics versus our analytical reasoning and thinking about what are situations that you're going to have, like system one, right? Like you're going to feel your heuristics firing and say, no matter what, I feel my heuristics firing, I am going to do analytical reasoning, right? And that can be if this patient, right, was a different race, would I treat their pain differently? If this patient was not in this particular hallway bed, if this patient wasn't in this part of town, if I had not taken this patient before, what is the process by which I would analyze their chief complaint and clinical exam? And knowing the most common, educating yourself about the most common forms of bias that we have, right? Like demonstrating impacts on patient care lets you proactively say like it's not like whether or not I have this bias it's like I got this bias right right? (laughs) like that is a given like it exists um but I need to say this is not a time my heuristics come in really useful right in time to treatment for a lot of things but they can also get me in a lot of trouble and I need to recognize like and I tell them like I even have like a little picture it's like a little switch goes from system one system two I'm like you got to do the switch And you got to like step back and you got to take a deep breath and you got to take an analytical reasoning approach um, or else you are going to, right? And we've all had like big misses and no miss feels worse than realizing it was your bias, right? Like that, that led to that miss. Um, And that's what leads, right? Our care, demonstrated care inequities, right? Are rooted into, we can see the impact of those, those biases. So and I found that teaching in that way, people, it's just like, oh, yeah, this is like, this is like the very heart of how I do medical decision making. It's like, yep. Yeah. And it's like, we're not going to discuss whether or not you have bias. Like, we're just going to say you do, right? Because, and we can do the implicit association test or whatever, like, no matter what, like, you do. Actually, my son, who is in high school, they did the implicit association test as one of his classes. And he comes home and he's like, oh my God, like I have so many bias. I was like, of course you do. <laughs> like, of course you do. Of course you do. So now you got to think about, right? Like, how do I make it so that those biases are not leading to inequitable impacts on other humans that I share this space with, right? Like, I am so glad that you learned this now because I wish I had learned it. Somebody had made me take that test when I was 17 years old. Um, right. Right. I think I would have done a lot more good and a lot less harm in the world um, if I'd learned it sooner rather than later. Let's just cut in there and have a quick word from our sponsor, EMS Gives Life. Hello, I'm Christine Fichter, the executive director of EMS Gives Life. 
At EMS Gives Life, our mission is simple. We educate the EMS first responder community on how to become a living organ or bone marrow donor and then provide support if you choose to give this gift of life. Our organization was inspired by pro-EMS paramedic Will Lindbergh's selfless decision to anonymously donate a portion of his liver saving the life of a three-year-old boy. We know our community is full of heroes who perform life-saving acts every day. It is this heroism and selflessness that we're counting on. More than 6,000 people die each year on the transplant waiting list. Deceased donors are simply not enough. Living organ donors are desperately needed, and our community is up for the challenge. Would you consider being a living donor if you had the support you needed and the assurance that you would go to the top of the list if you ever needed a transplant in the future? Through our partnerships, we can make those promises. If you're curious about living organ or bone marrow donation, let's talk. And if you're already a living donor, we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at emsgiveslife.org. Thank you. Thank you, Christine, and uh, great news, everybody out there, because one of the people that we have been supporting with EMS Gives Life, Reed Capel, uh, and we did a, a broadcast with Reed way back when, has now undergone successful transplant, and uh, judging by his Facebook page, he's doing really well. So, from us here at uh, the EMS Educator Podcast. Uh, congratulations, Reed. Um, we are so pleased for you. Anyway, uh, with that news, Maya, back to you. I think, you know, if I had to say what was one of the big, big takeaways I took from your talk, which was amazing and that everybody needs to hear, um, as you were talking about the different components, um, you put up a slide and it was about how, what are your productive ways to respond when you get feedback? And, you know, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about feedback. I think about how to give it well. I think about how to receive it well. Um, and I spent a lot of time talking to somebody like Ginger Locke about feedback in the educational space and, you know, why sometimes people find feedback threatening, right? Like, because it threatens the, like your identity of, you know, who you think you are. And I realized as you put up that slide that I, in my mind, I had a conception that upstander training was about teaching people how to say something productively about what they see happening. Um, and that is definitely true. But I realized that it was almost just as much about teaching people how to take feedback well, how to have gratitude for feedback that is sometimes uncomfortable, sometimes sort of threatens your identity about who, right? Like who you think you are, because you don't think you're somebody who's saying something that's committing microaggressions against other people. Um, but really sometimes it takes somebody else uh, to point it out to you. Um, and to me, that was this, this like light bulb moment where I was like, it's not just on people to say something it's on the, it's on developing a culture um, where we have gratitude towards feedback that's uncomfortable to take, um, but makes the whole culture better. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, or if I got the point. No, of course you got the point. No, that that is great, and I do appreciate you know, um, you know the your experience and the impact upon you because that's definitely what I'm trying to convey um, to you know basically to share with people in this experience. And, you know, and the slide I think you're referring to is when, you know, how to receive feedback when you're called out. 
And, you know, and the big thing is to recognize for everyone that we all have implicit bias. And once we can at least have that same foundation of accepting that, because that's based upon how we were raised, who raised us, where we were raised. And these are just automatic associations that we've built that are, you know, uh, for a preference towards or against something or someone or a group of people. And recognizing that these are reinforced with like the society and cultural conditioning that we have that sometimes we're just not even aware of. And we have to realize that, you know, we will be called out at some time. I've been called out multiple times. Now, I will say that a lot of my called being called out about are when it's in a realm that I'm not a part of. So I would say a lot of times that I've been called out is um, really during a LGBTQIA plus communities. So when I do the upstander training, I've had some people say, well, this seems a lot focused on race, even though like in the training, I'll try out talk about LGBTQIA plus, you know, but however, the experiences that I share as examples are from my experience, which I will have to say, that's why I define myself in the beginning of like my experiences as a black cis female heterosexual. So, you know, am I going to be able to talk about an LGBTQIA plus community from my own experience? I am not. And so, but having to realize that I'm not going to make up something uh, was in, because I want to fulfill of having this, you know, this totality. But what that means to me is that I need to basically enhance myself, the cases that we have, making sure that we have equitable cases that are not just geared towards race, because that's what I talk about in the presentation. But when we do small group sessions in cases that that is looking at gender identity looking at uh, sexual orientation, looking at ability, looking at socioeconomic status. So you're having a combination of a lot of different things, uh, demographics, so you can be equitable across the board. And so that's the feedback that I took. And I learned, you know, to say like, you know, I thank you, you know, thank you. You know, I, you know, can you, are you are okay to give me any recommendations or are like, do you have any resources that you recommend? I'm not going to have someone teach me because one of the things too, I've seen with pitfalls where people are like, oh, well, can you teach me about racism? I'm like, no, I can't teach you about racism. I can lead you to some resources so you can teach yourself, but it's not my accountability or responsibility to be your teacher. Now, for if I'm teaching upstander training, yes, upstander training, I am definitely teaching you. Here we go. Let's go. Woo woo. You know, but however, you know, for other things, you know, we want to put the onus on your own self development. And I think, you know, having the, you know, the slide with being called out, I've had too many experiences where I've had people where they're like, well, I didn't mean it that way, or they took it wrong. And I try to reframe people to think about, let's focus more on the priority of the impact, not on your intent, because your intent definitely, even though it is positive, even though you have good intentions, but if it is received negatively, harmfully, our attack should not be on that person of how they received it. We should start thinking, I apologize on how I delivered this. How can I deliver this better to coincide with my true intent? And one of the examples I bring up is I went to Johns Hopkins for medical school. And I remember when I got in, people were like, oh my gosh, you're going to Johns Hopkins. How did you get in? And I was like, I got in like everybody else. I applied. I don't, I don't understand 
why this is a question, you know, type of deal. But however, you know, the intent from that person was as a compliment. Like, I'm so, I'm so surprised. But the impact to me was, why are you surprised? Is it because you don't think I'm intelligent enough? You don't think that on my own scruples, I was able to go to Johns Hopkins. I was able to go to Harvard from an MPH. I had to do something that had to be outside of the realm of just what normal people do. And the reality is that's not true. I did everything in the normal. Now, I will say that, you know, I tried to do some extra stuff because I come from a family that, you know, raised definitely during Jim Crow era, things of that nature, where I was taught I need to do 110% than my white colleague because that's only when I can be seen at that level. And so, I so I try to exceed as many expectations as possible because that's what was ingrained in me. Because I can't be mediocre to be seen at the same level as a, as a white person next to me. And so, you know, and so that's where we have to realize that, you know, it's really the impact upon the recipient who is receiving the feedback, which is that where that microaggression comes into. That is where the bias comes into. And to recognize within ourselves that we still have learning to do. I still have learning to do. And I definitely have read plenty of books and articles and things of that nature, but I'm still in a lifelong learning process. I want to hear about your experiences in teaching this type of material. Um, Can you tell us about some of the different forums that you have taught this material and what the, the sort of lessons learned from that experience. Yeah. And, and if you can add too, because people love to hear kind of actual stories or anecdotes about um, ways that you've helped uh, EMS clinicians and leaders actually go through a scenario. Cause we've talked a little bit about simulation as well. Go ahead, Ricky. Oh, sure. No problem. Um, so I would say I was, I have personally um, got, I've taught um, EMS implicit bias training to, uh, was it on to um, Eagle County? And so one of the uh, things now I will say that they had the full with scenarios, the full like upstander training with implicit bias training. So which is about like a two and a half, three hour session. And um, and one of the things I do have to give credit to uh, paramedic Will Dunn for really reaching out to me to do it. And he was like my first group that I was starting this off. And he definitely was like, Ricky, they're predominantly white men. And I was like, okay, all right. So that's my audience. I, I, I appreciate my setup. And um, and one of the things that I have learned, because you know, sometimes when you're in conversation with people and you talk about, you know, I think there was bias that was involved, or I think that you may be biased uh was it, with this decision. You know, it's interesting that people hear this misconception of like, you're racist. Like, and I'm, I'm not saying that you're a racist, I'm not saying you're sexist, I'm not saying that like you're automatically discriminatory discrimination against like the LGBTI plus community homeless people, able people, you know, not saying that you're a bad person when I say that, yeah, you know, that sounds like that decision had bias involved. Um, and so really trying to tease people away from this misconception of how bias is automatically associated with things that make you bad. 
um, we're recognizing of like how we all have biases. And so, um, so framing it in a way so people can understand that. And I bring up even my own biases of, you know, when I grew up, I thought all black people knew how to dance. And I was like, you know, everybody can pop and lock it with some rhythm. But I came across black people who didn't have rhythm. Then I came across white people, you know, Latin people, Asian people who did have rhythm. And I was like, uh, are they black? And I'm like, no, Ricky, that is a bias that literally everybody has, you know, their own rhythm. You know, they, they sway to their own music. Now I will admit there's some people that like, you know, I may not catch the beat to, to the beat of the music that I'm feeling, but however, there's a rhythm, there's a rhythm. So, uh, you know, so it's understanding that and putting it in that framework where people allow their defenses to go down. Because once you start teaching it into an all-inclusive, we all have this, no one is immune to it. You know, there's, you know, that biased blind spot, you know, that people think, well, I'm less biased than that person. Well, the reality is, no, we're all biased and it's different topics, different groups of people that we will generate our biases on based upon our own lived experiences. And so, and so when you frame it like that, and then you can go into the nitty gritty of how this has happened in EMS, bringing up cases in EMS where bias has been involved, you know, bringing up like, what are the strategies with IQEE? And, and I would have to say doing it in that framework for a curriculum, I would say that I have gotten great feedback um, from. And um, from Eagle County, especially, uh, one of the greatest compliments that I received that uh, Will told me, he said that, you know, the oldest, like, this like rankety, uh, you know, firefighter who, you know, was like, the, I don't really want to be in this training type of uh, person. Uh, went back to his fire chief because they recorded the session and said, this needs to be mandatory for everyone. And, you know, and I was like, wow, like that really like, like hit my heart of like, wow, that is impressive. Especially when you are talking to people who are part of the majority where you have a white privilege. And even when we're talking about white privilege and and how even though you may not be aware of it, there is a privilege that is granted to you for being part of the white majority. And talking about that and making sure that people don't develop white fragility, which is now having this embarrassment, having this shaming, having, you know, this automatic response of like, I need to to leave, or I don't want to talk about this, or I don't, you know, like I can't, I'm not responsible for what my grandfather did. Like that fragility, which really that white people can develop when we're talking about race that makes them feel uncomfortable. And so there's a way that we have to teach it where we don't have the majority feel uncomfortable, but we also empower those that typically never have a voice, part of the underrepresented minorities, to be able to have a space where they can actually reveal a lot of things that have happened to them. Because then that is when uh, I would say the white majority is able to receive and truly be an ally. And so that's another, that's another, uh, was a training that, you know, I do for like EMS agencies and things like that of like how to become an effective ally and breaking down those concepts of white fragility with white privilege. And then what it means to be a white supremacist, how that is different than those. And, you know, and really incorporating of how this country was built on systemic racism. So it is interwoven into everything that we do. And it's going to take 
centuries for us to unweave that. But however, when we continue having barriers and blockades where now people don't want the teaching, they don't want the education, we're not going to progress. And, and so that's why I would say like for having Eagle County to say this, like I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And so, um, and so I presented this over at EMS Fire. I was in Greensboro, North Carolina, just recently in, at the end of September. And, you know, I had lots of people come up to me and be like, wow, how you framed this, I didn't feel uncomfortable. I didn't trigger that white fragility where people could be receptive and to actually receive the information that is being given and also see from what are EMS cases where, you know, where things where now we are being put to the judicial system, you know, when we're looking at some of the cases, you know, with uh, was within uh, Springfield, Illinois, uh, you know, with with Earl uh, was in, when we're looking at, you know, Tyree Nichols in Memphis, Tennessee, when we're even looking in, you know, in um, Aurora, Colorado um, with, some, with the case in there. So it's looking at those things and recognizing that, you know, when we are present, like we're responsible, even for George Floyd. I remember looking and I'm like, why are EMS not even checking a pulse? Like, you know, literally that looking at that video, I could see some of the issues that at least from my side of, you know, saying, you know, was this followed as a true procedural protocol that we are taught as EMS clinicians? So being able to frame it so people can actually receive and see, wow, here are the mistakes that happened within these cases and how can I prevent myself from doing those? And, you know, and so that's why you know, like the feedback that I received now, I will say that now I'm doing it for the city of Pittsburgh for a fall training. So that just started in early September. So everyone stays tuned because um, definitely we're going to be analyzing the feedback that we receive from uh, from the fall training from that EMS agency. Um, also doing it for paramedic students. So that's another um, that we're analyzing from the paramedic students of now for the implicit bias training, what they are, what their impact has been. So I will say that right now, you know, especially for the national EMS education standards, requiring that there's implicit bias training and culture humility training uh, from 2021, but there's no standardization with that. And so that's where you can see myself along with some other colleagues really trying to build a curriculum that can be universal, that can be, you know, given to other people so that um, at least uh, we can start the train the trainers. Because I will say that there's a way that you have to teach this also. That, you know, some people will say, well, if can I just get your slides? And I would, I don't give people my slides. I don't give people my presentation. The reason for that is because there's a way that I present it and the way that I have framed the information so I can lead my audience into the framework that I want them to be. And as a lecturer, as a speaker, if I just give you the slides, I can't guarantee you're going to lead them in that direction. And, you know, and so that's why I would say, like, you know, I, I apologize for those that are like asking for them. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't do it. But I can present to your group. Let me know when there's a time. Let me know, you know, when there is availability that I can come to your group, whether that's virtually or, if, you know, in person to present this. Because a lot of it does depend on the speaker. So when I do my up-center training um, and from the feedback, a lot of the feedback is because I, I would say, I would say I break down walls 
of defensiveness when I bring myself out to be vulnerable. So when I tell about my stories, when I tell about my experience, because there's a certain, there's a certain, I would say credibility that I generate. So when I tell you what has happened to me, you believe me and you're like, wow, I can't even believe that this person said this to you. And it's the truth. This is, but I've learned to use my traumatic experiences for the good of people to learn about them. So then it helps people to explore. And now think of, oh, I need to think of, wait a minute, what did Ricky say? Or how did Ricky feel in that situation that she revealed to us when that person said that to her? And hopefully that then generates that courage for that person to speak up because they think of the victim perspective. I'm sorry, that was a really drawn out. I don't know if I answered everything. I, I think you did. And yeah. um, we did um, a webinar with Amira Hamid and uh, Deb Summer from Chicago Fire Department. And that was another key theme as I think people were like, well, is there a curriculum? Can I use a curric- curriculum from somewhere? Um, and there was their take on it was you got to sort of do your homework and your, we can give you a framework right? We can give you an outline of the things that should be covered, but you're going to have to do your homework on your own system. You're going to have to find the right instructors um, who can bring that lived experience. And to me, you know, maybe that's the secret ingredient or the not so secret, quite public ingredient, actually, um, about what makes for successful trainings um, around implicit bias is um, like so much. It's, it's the instructors and the the lived experience that they can they can bring to that as well as the data and the realities of your own yeah. agency your own jurisdiction the patient population that you serve it's not the same everywhere we all know that in the same way that uh, one part of the country might see more patients with snake bites there are also very different ways that uh, cultures and um, populations mix um, especially as regards to how the um, agency itself, uh, staffs, um, and, and has its own diversity. So that's a really important part. I think, Ricky, that, um, we'd love to hear one or two kind of nuggets of advice, uh, as we wrap here today, um, on, you know, when, if I'm an educator, a chief or a leader, but, you know, someone who's going to go into the classroom or know that we need to do this or starting to implement or already has, what are, what are kind of a couple pieces of advice you would give? to folks who um, may be uh, less than confident about teaching this and or may not have the support or resources that they need? What should they do? Sure. I mean, what I tell people is to reach out to me. Um, You know, I provide myself as a resource because I will say that there's different levels to this. So there's the first, the foundation, and then there's the applying it to my agency. And so, and this is not like a one-stop shop type of deal. For you to really dive into your agency, you got to get the tools of foundation first. And that's where definitely myself, Amira, uh, let me not automatically volunteer Amira out there, but however, I can say for myself, uh, you know, I, you know, definitely, you know, reaching out to me and that's what I tell people and like, you know, reach out to me and we can at least start that conversation because a lot of times I would say that, it's what I have heard is either someone has had an instructor and there's a bad experience with it. And so we completely stop. We don't do anything now. Or I have, there's no one that can do this. No one feels comfortable to do this. 
So that's why I kind of bypass that to at least let me start and, you know, and, and, and it's sort of like that appetizer, you know, like that appetizer that prepares you for the full meal. So like, let me be the one to start the appetizer, you know, because of my skills that I can bring to the table. Because once I start the appetizer and now you start having people coming to you and saying, hey, this is a great point that Dr. Tripp brought up. This is a great point to the agency. So now you start having buy-in from your agency. And now you can really start the process of dining in. Because sometimes I've seen that, you know, people will completely just say, okay, well, we did that. That's a checkbox. And then that's it. But again, nothing has changed within the agency. So you have to basically say that this is so in your mind, you have to frame that this is not a one-stop shop. It's not going to be a one-time affair. That is going to be a continual longitudinal process within my agency where we're going to be analyzing what are the things that we can make our agency more equitable, more diverse, and more inclusive, and really provide health equity with that social justice aspect. You know, how we can really incorporate learning about the social drivers and determinants of health. You know, how are these things that can incorporate into an EMS perspective? And, but you need to have that start off foundation, which I do think that it's very difficult for a lot of agencies. And that's where, like, I, definitely volunteer to at least help to start that conversation because then that's that plants the seed and then I can give the skills to everyone to fertilize that so it can grow into progression so I would say that recognizing that that's going to be the process because I, I think a lot of people were like oh well we had this one lecture like everyone should be fine and dandy everyone should be good woo woo yes everybody's a Jedi whoa whoa and the reality is that's not it because again People are having years of their experiences, you know, from, you know, being a, you know, a child. And now they're like in their 40s, 30s, you know, so you have multiple years of things that you have to rework, reframe and really, you know, try to, uh, I would say, build or create new synapses of understanding so that you don't automatically are going to act upon that bias. You develop these tools to stop yourself and say, wait a minute, hold up. Am I, am I thinking in a biased way? When I come see that, that patient who is homeless and I automatically coming in there, just like, oh, I'm upset. I'm like, why is this person here? Like, you know, like, am I doing that automatically before going into, there may be true concerns, you know? Um, and I think one of the things that, you know, can happen too is, um, is, building upon your experiences. So, so building upon going into community engagement activities that are not truly just associated with like you doing calls. So doing bystander CPR, listening to the community, what their concerns are, you know, um, when looking at the disparities, uh, was a paper that was done, like looking at, you know, searching for Latin, a Hispanic, um, communities, having an automatic association of, you know, paramedics, EMTs with ICE. And they're like, I don't want to call 911 because I don't want, like, I'm undocumented. So, you know, so recognizing that, you know, that we need to go into these communities also as another step for us to build that rapport, that trust with those communities. And then also giving them the education about what we do. Um, so then they can understand where we're coming from. So I would say that, you know, strategies would be really like more community engagement with the education, you know, reaching out to me. I can definitely help to at least start the process with the seedling so that they can fertilize within your agency. 
Nice. Nice analogy. Ricky, how can people find you either on social media or get in touch if you don't mind sharing um, your info? No, I don't. I'll have to say social media, you may find me, but do I check it? No, I don't. Okay. Upfront about that one. But um, you can reach me via email. So it's trip, T R I P P R P, at upmc.edu. Um, or you can do my Gmail account, which is Ricky, R I C K I dot trip, T R I P P, at gmail.com. And so I, I frequently, I'll, I'm always on my email. So yeah. that would be the best way to contact me. But yes, if you do find a Facebook account, if you do find a LinkedIn, I am technically on there, but um, I don't check it. So I know I'm so I'm a work in progress with social media. No worries. I'm That's fine. I, I think as we're wrapping today, we're just so grateful to have had um, these words of wisdom from someone um, who is really devoting her life to making the world a better place. And I don't say that uh, flippantly in any way. Uh, it's what Maya was saying earlier about culture and change and doing the best thing for other humans. Um, not about calling people out, not about getting people in trouble or labeling them, but knowing that we in this industry have joined the field because we want to help others and we want to make the world better. And this is one way that we can recognize the things that get in the way of that and fix them. So I thank you. Before we go, don't forget to like and subscribe on the channel or the platform that you're listening to this podcast on. If you're listening to us on a phone, look at it on the top right hand corner is a little checkbox. If you check that, it means you've liked and subscribed. So every time an episode of the EMS Educator podcast drops, you get notified. Please make sure you give us a good five stars. Write a review uh, so uh, you can give us a little bit more searchability. So that was another edition of the EMS Educator podcast. Thanks, as always, to co-hosts Hilary Gates and Dr. Maya Dorset, and, of course, our special guest, Dr. Ricky Tripp. I've been Rob Lawrence. This has been the EMS Educator podcast. And until next time, bye for now.